think it's important for us, for the new talent that joins us, that we have a purpose to drive our private equity clients, not just to be the best financial investors, but also to be the best investors for the world. Joining me today is Christoph de Vusser, a partner in our Brussels office. Today we'll talk with Christoph about his background and path to Bain, his impactful work within Bain's private equity practice, and the crossroads of private equity and ESG at Bain. Welcome, Christoph. It's great to have you here. Great to be here, Keith. So, Christoph, as we always do, I want to get started with a little bit about your education and early career path. So why don't we start with enrolling in your master's program at the University of Ghent? What was the plan? What career path did you have in mind when you started on the journey? Yeah, so as you say, um, I'm a civil engineer, classic construction engineer from uh, the University of Ghent in Belgium. I don't think there was a, a big master plan of becoming an engineer. So I was good at math at school. And by being good at math, and you look into the options and what career options uh, can be out there. Engineer was the obvious one. You know, it's um, it's a it's an education with a lot of opportunities coming out of it, mm-hmm. and it's kind of the obvious one that they recommend to you when uh, when you're good at maths at school, did and you, so that's what I that's what I did. Did you get a lot of advice from from family and friends on on the careers paths ahead of you with that with that degree background? Yeah, I think I got most of the advice from my teachers at school, um, actually from the math teacher, probably mainly because none of my parents actually were really into into business. My mom is a preschool teacher. My father uh, was working, uh, you know, at the uh, distribution center of uh, Volvo trucks, you know. And so none really had a background at university, you know, was kind of the first generation in the family going to university. And so I I relied a lot on, uh, I think, on on some of the mentors and teachers Mm -hmm. at school that helped me think through uh, career opportunities. And when you went to the degree program that you went into and you finished, did you want to be a civil engineer? Did you have an eye towards business or how did you choose what to do on the back end of the degree? Yeah, I, I think I got more into it, um, which might sound funny um, from a, from an artistic point of view. Actually, I think probably I, I was trying, I was always interested in architecture and construction was relatively close. And one of these people that, um, that likes and likes bridges or can can look into a bridge as a, a piece of art, and I, I think it's one of the reasons why um, why I why I did end up at the construction side. I'm I'm not really an engineer, you know, from computer science or mm-hmm. or um, or designing cars and motors etc. But I think the the more artistic point of view I always find interesting. So that's why I got into into the construction side. So I didn't see you come through the AC process for the BBM interviewing uh, that we did after school. Did you consider Bain when you finished that program before you went to your industry job? Tricky question, Keith, because I actually applied at Bain uh, at that time, which was in 1996. I still have the letter of the then office head wishing me all the luck in my career. But I, I got laid in the, in the process. Bain was just starting up in Belgium. Uh, I applied. There were two or three people that I recruited at the time, and um, I did make it. And so I, I first went then into uh, Procter & Gamble uh, for four years uh, before Bain contacted me back um, through a headhunter. But yeah, um, 
it's so it's not because you wanted to go into Bain, didn't have the first opportunity to get into it, that therefore there's no opportunities later on in the career. So at, at Procter & Gamble, uh, they have a lot of roles around product management. They obviously have a lot of brands that people know. Did you go on to the business side at Procter & Gamble or did you did you do something different there? I didn't go on to the marketing side, mm-hmm. but I went into um, the purchasing or strategic sourcing site out of the European headquarters, first in Brussels and then in uh, in Geneva, which was actually um, one of the best schools I think I've gotten through at, at Procter & Gamble. So the marketing is typically local when you start. So you, you get a local brand, you work into the local country. Um, on, on the sourcing site, actually, it's a global organization where immediately you're part of, of global sourcing teams. Um, I had the opportunity to be part of um, the sourcing team that was opening up um, sourcing in China at the time, you know, in the, in the, in the late 90s. Um, spend a lot of time in China, in the Middle East, developing global global suppliers. Um, and that is, is really, I think, the education that I got that got me onto the business side at that time. And so it's been a great school, actually, at Procter & Gamble. And how much responsibility did you have you know, early in your career, two and three years out of university, as as a buyer in a global organization like P and G, was it was it a lot of responsibility? Were you just learning by being part of the team? Were you, you know, t- talk a little bit more about that? No, I think uh, P and G was great. I given young people a lot of a lot of responsibilities. I mean, it's of course it's a huge company, and so for them giving uh, relatively young people responsibility for tens or hundreds of million of of uh, of dollars of sourcing value wasn't wasn't exceptional at a certain moment i was a global buyer of citric acid and there were two huge global buyers it was procter and gamble and coca-cola and when we were going to develop the the sourcing in china you know you could go as the lead buyer in the world of citric acid and and that got you know gave a lot of learning and a lot of opportunities to to grow actually and to take responsibilities mm-hmm. early on in the career and so when you when you're doing that and you're building those skills at some point you probably thought I should do something more business related so how did you end up back at Bain because it sounds like you were given a lot of responsibility had a ton of learning and and honestly for a first generation college student your career was was going well so what was the motivation yeah. to change well it's it's one of the elements that i often mention to young people as well is it's good to look into what people do that have been in your role and stay for 10 years in that role. Right. right. And what are, what are those people doing when they continue into the firm or when they leave the firm? And so um, I saw that a lot of the, the people that started into sourcing either stayed into sourcing. Mm-hmm. And when they went out of Procter & Gamble, they often go into sourcing at another firm. And it's not what I wanted to do at that time. Right. And so when I got actually recontacted by Bain at that time through a headhunter, I thought that was a great opportunity to maybe uh, to maybe see something else than staying into the sourcing world. So I'm incredibly grateful for everything I've learned. Uh, but at the same time, I thought joining, you know, consulting for, you know, two or three years, you know, might provide more options uh, to my career. And so that, that's why I joined Bain at the time. So the search firm calls you back and you get another round of case interviews. Did that go well? Well, <laughs> I, th- I think there's people that had uh, prepared better at times for interviews than, than I did. 
Um, but I think um, some of my friends were still at Bain and they've, they say, you know, you know, let's hire even if the interviews were not perfect. Uh, <laughs> Very well that, said. That goes, and that, that went well so far. So you joined Bain, and did you have any exposure to Bain while you were working at Procter & Gamble? I mean, you're, you're working in parts of the world in, in procurement, uh, in consumer products. You know, you probably came across us a little bit. So did you know what you were getting yourself into when you joined? No, because Procter & Gamble is not really a firm that uses a lot of consultants. And so it was a bit of a jump in, into a different world, which at times was was interesting because you come from a world with a lot of autonomy where you're negotiating big deals with, with the leading chemical suppliers and you move into a world where, you know, your manager tells you, you know, to improve your tagline, the y-axis on your slide and the sources on your slide. So uh, that is a bit, um, that was a bit of a learning curve, let's say. But I think, I think once you get it, when you're sitting in client meetings and the client reacts to your slides, you all of a sudden start to understand the importance of taglines, axes, and sources. And because it's exactly when I thought, why does that care? And the client points you to it. You know it's important. But I think that's an easy learning curve, getting into the business, learning the job, knowing exactly why that's important, and then adding on the experience that you've built throughout the years, mm-hmm. you know, from, from the business world that you've been into. was I think that mix was really helpful. And I think, honestly, I needed probably... Um, the four years in, in a firm in order to be an effective consultant as well. Did you know that you were going to focus in private equity from the beginning? Because that's where you ended up now. But I would have assumed with your background in consumer products, you would have started in the consumer products practice and probably built out a nice niche for yourself doing procurement work you know, as a consultant. Actually, it's a, it's maybe a fun story. But when I, I joined Bain, I had explicitly mentioned, you know, I come out of procurement. I was working procurement at the leading consumer goods firm. And so if I wanted to do world-class procurement, I would have stayed. Similarly, if I wanted to be a construction engineer, you know, I would have done it. So don't put me into construction and procurement. Right. And uh, when in the first year there was a case of construction, uh, procurement in a construction company, I said, now, you know, now they're going to staff me onto it. And to the credit of Bain, they didn't. It would have been the easiest solution but they didn't staff me on it. And, and it's one of these moments of truth that I actually knew this is a great firm, you know? Now, coming back to, to your earlier question, I did start into the consumer world. It's what I knew, it's what I liked. And so a lot of the work initially was with leading consumer goods firms. And that's why I really enjoyed it. But it's through one of my clients that I worked with as a, um, as a manager, turning around a business of a of a large consumer goods firm that I started to appreciate uh, transforming companies, turning around companies. That client went into private equity, and that's how I followed uh, into mm. the private equity world. So it's been an, an, a natural transition, let's say, from consumer following the clients into private equity. And obviously, I had done um, several diligences because it's a core part of Bain's work to already get acquainted with with private equity. Christoph, can you talk a little bit about the relationship you had with that client? Because I think a lot of people look at partners and assume that they're just calling around CEOs, trying to introduce themselves to CEOs. And I know my experience was that the CEOs that I know, I often knew before they were CEO. You know, what, what level was that client in the organization when you met as a manager and, and how has it grown since then? Yeah, I think there's 
there's a few of those relationships. And the one that I mentioned, that in the, that person was asked to lead the transformation of a small business unit, kind of $200 million business unit of a large CP firm. He was put there from corporate in order to facilitate the division to drive the turnaround. As I said, small company, heavily loss-making. And we worked hand-in-hand. I was a young manager at Bain. Um, so he was there to transform the company. We worked together for over a year on making that profitable. After 18 months, it was uh, from minus 20, you know, to plus 10% profit. Wow. And that was, a, that was a great success story. It was actually sold to private equity behind that turnaround and that transformation story. But that was, uh, you know, I was a manager and he was sent by corporate to drive a corporate transformation of a, of a, small, of a small unit. He then became the CFO of the European division of, 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 of that firm. And from that went into private equity. And from that became, you know, one of the leading managing partners in one of the leading private equity firms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had the pleasure of working together for a long time up to now. You know, it's, it's going to be soon almost 20 years. But he didn't start as a CEO. I didn't start as a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've enjoyed working together. We have enjoyed creating results. Um, and that's how the, the relationship grew. And the relationship today, as you think about it, I imagine that you've had a lot of opportunities to leave and go work for private equity firms or, or even join your friend uh, at their firm. What keeps you at Bain focused on the client work as an advisor as opposed to you know, going in and joining an operations team or joining an investment team at a fund? Yeah, and these are personal choices, right? There's people that that like staying at Bain. There's people that like taking the the external opportunity. I've always enjoyed the the team side, the talent side at Bain. You know, it's it's great to work with the talent that we have at Bain. It's it's great to work with our teams, help our teams grow, see our teams develop into partners themselves, and create these CEO relationships. Um, I've also always enjoyed to work with that client, but at the same time have the opportunity to work, for instance, with some of the leading CP firms on the site at times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you have, often it feels like you're working at two, two companies at the same time. You have two sets of colleagues, one where you have the clear team dimension, you know, and well, everything that Bain stands for uh, from a cultural point of view. And on the other side, you have the client organization where you can work with as much passion um, for delivering the results to, together with them that you like. And I've always enjoyed that mix. And, uh, you know, it's it's because of that, also because of the opportunities that I've gotten within Bain to also lead part of our business, I think. And, you know, that, that, I've, that I've made the choice to stay at Bain, you know, despite multiple opportunities to take external roles. So I do want to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing leading a big part of our business in private equity. But before I get there, I did want to talk about, uh, you've also had other leadership roles at Bain. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about those working with the board and the Brussels office and and other leadership opportunities that you've taken advantage of? Yeah. Yeah, I had the luck of um, of having the opportunity to, uh, to take several internal roles, let's say. Um, leading the Brussels office was great because it's really a talent role. You lead a team, you constantly try to grow the team, bring the new talent in, make the talent grow, 
you know, build new partners from that, from those teams and do that with an enthusiasm of creating real success stories with clients in, in the local market. But, but uh, I think the talent side of that was really interesting and, and, uh, and exciting, you know, to build out the team that, that's actually better now than the team that we were in the future. And next to that, uh, you know, the private equity practice, having the, um, the opportunity to lead our European private equity practice is, is an absolute honor. You know, Bain is known for private equity. Uh, it's the leading private equity team um, in the consulting world. And, and it's, you know, it's truly an honor to be able to bring that to the, to the next level. Um, and from a, from a board of directors point of view, being able to sit on the board of directors, work through our own strategy. On the board of directors, I work on our M&A strategy. That's just an absolute pleasure to take, to be asked to take the responsibility also to lead the firm from that point of view. And so there's, there's a lot of opportunities. And again, none of those I would have anticipated when I joined Bain uh, 20 years ago. And you always see it's kind of impossible uh, to get those opportunities. But it's, it's incredibly exciting to be able to end build your clients and build, you know, Bain and the firm at the same time. So let's actually talk about that for a second, because you mentioned that you're sort of leading the M&A for Bain, not the M&A practice for our clients, but actual acquisitions that we're doing. And I know we've done several in the last 12 to 24 months uh, in our private equity practice. So you sort of sit right at the intersection or the interlock as we talk about them of, of M&A for Bain and private equity for Bain. Let's talk a little bit about those innovations. Maybe we can start with some of the the technology uh, acquisitions and tech-related acquisitions that we've done. But can you sort of paint a picture for the people listening of, of how these acquisitions fit together as they do? Because there have been several of them, and to an outside observer, it's not always clear sort of what we're actually building and, and the, the mosaic as it comes together. Yeah, so people that follow Bain on LinkedIn or uh, on our website might have seen acquisitions like Tech Economy, OPEX Engine, a partnership with uh, Cypress, where we launch a product called D-Ledge, etc. And it's it's maybe indeed difficult, Keith, as you mentioned, to see what's the story behind. But let me give you an example on, for instance, the, the, the work that we do um, with private equity clients in the software space. We're one of the lead advisors on, on software diligence. And we have a huge experience on doing that from the commercial side. You know, how's the market uh, going to evolve on the software space? What's the total addressable market, et cetera? And, and that was our, you know, that's our core experience that we have at Bain. With tech economy, we can now complement that with technology. You know, the underlying technology that the software companies are using is that ready for the scaling of the software firm? You know, is the code written in the right way? Is the cybersecurity correct, et cetera? So that we're able to not just do it on the commercial side, but also on, on the underlying tech of, of the, those software companies. With OPEX Engine, we've bought the biggest global benchmark database on operational KPIs of software firms. Mm -hmm. 200 KPIs on sales effectiveness, commercial effectiveness, operational effectiveness of software companies. Nobody in the world has that. And then with the CPRESS agreement and our DLATCH product, we were able to say how exactly people made their returns in software deals. 
What was the average return on software deals, the IRR, how much multiple on the money that they put in did they make? And did they make that money through growth, through margin expansion, or through multiple expansion? And so you can look into software deals and sub-segments of software deals and how people make, made their money. And so now with the acquisitions of tech economy, OPEX engine, and our deal with uh, Cypress on Dealage, we can complement our extensive commercial diligence knowledge with the diligence on the underlying technology of those firms, with the best in the world view on the operational KPIs of software companies, and an understanding of how people made their returns in the past on subverticals of software, and therefore how the deal that you look into compares with some of those historic deals and how they've made their money. And that integrated offering between diligence experience, proprietary data sets, and increasingly automation on those data sets is, is an experience and uh, that I think nobody else in the world can offer now uh, to private equity clients. And that's the type of innovation that we do. That's the type of innovation and, and M&A that we're going to uh, continue to be doing um, because it allows us to give better advice uh, to our private equity clients on how to think in this specific case on, uh, on software deals. And when we're doing that kind of work there, are there other verticals or other parts of the of industry where we have that same type of capability, uh, where we strung together sort of products and tools and capabilities that other companies just can't have? Where else are we doing that? Yeah, I think I, I gave the software example, but obviously we try to do this across you know every part of uh, of of the industry where deals are being done. We try to replicate that on the healthcare side. Um, on the fintech side, on the consumer and retail side. Um, so I just took the uh, software example there. I think the other part where we are doing it is clearly on the ESG side, because that becomes increasingly important as a value driver for private equity uh, clients. Um, you know, ultimately, if consumers start to choose what product to buy based on the ESG characteristic, if the talent you get is dependent on, on your ESG profile, if your cost increasingly becomes you know, an advantage or a disadvantage uh, based on the ESG profile, ESG becomes a value-creating driver. You know, and, and that is a big shift versus the, a few years ago. Now, we try to replicate on the ESG exactly what I mentioned on the software side. So we take ESG with a value creation mindset. You know? How can you drive value through ESG? Also, how can you de-risk yourself but more from a value creation mindset? How can you win through ESG in the market? We've complemented that with a partnership with Ecovadis, which is a SaaS platform that has 80,000 companies and the maturity assessment of those companies on the 24 critical ESG metrics. And so if we look with private equity firms into a certain industry, into a certain company, we can benchmark that across 80,000 uh, companies and the maturity assessment on those ESG criteria. Next to that, we've made a partnership a few weeks ago with Persephone, which is a SaaS platform that, um, that helps to do carbon accounting. You know, if you have a financial ledger in one way, this is a carbon ledger. Um, and so it allows uh, financial investors to see across their portfolio, AI enabled, where does the carbon sit? 
How can we optimize it? And it offers a SaaS platform that you can work as a private equity fund and as their portfolio companies to constantly optimize and measure the progress you make on on uh, on decarbonization. That's why it's called a carbon uh, carbon ledger. And so on the ESG side, you know, we've taken it with our value creation approach. We have the biggest benchmark database on ESG maturity assessments, and we have a decarbonization SaaS platform um, on top of that. And that is the biggest integrative offer that we can offer to private equity clients now uh, through our own experience and the partnerships and the acquisitions that we've done over the last weeks. So Christoph, for people that might be joining Bain, is this work that we're only doing with expert staff or people that we hire in to do tech diligence or ESG diligence? How does how can people get involved in what you just talked about? Because it's, it's basically doing something that other companies can't do and working with the leader in the space. So what does that look like for somebody joining Bain? Ultimately, we want to integrate ESG in every single diligence and every single value creation plan that we do. And so if you're new to Bain and you're going to work on our diligences, you're going to work on our value creation plans. The purpose is that you will be part and be able to work you know, with these tools on ESG, with this partnership on ESG, on every single case uh, that we're working on. This is not something just for experts, but this is core of what we want to do in all our diligence and all our value creation plans at Bain. Yeah, I remember uh, sitting in the healthcare practice meeting several years ago when I was doing a lot of client work in the space, and the head of the practice stood up at the beginning of the meeting and said, you know, there was not a single deal of any material value anywhere in the world that our private equity group didn't diligence last year. And and it was just kind of one of those moments where you go, did he say what I think he just said? Because that's, that's wild uh, to just think that in every market around the world, you know, Bain was Bain was looking at all the important deals that was there. You mentioned healthcare earlier, but that's true in almost every sector of the economy at this point, I think. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's 100% everywhere, but indeed we look into the vast majority of all the big deals that are happening in the world and with a relative scale that's three times the one of our next competitor in terms of the the number of diligences that we do. And that's just incredibly exciting. If you're active in a space and you pretty much see every every big deal that comes out into the market and we're able to be part of that, it gives us an enormous amount of pride, but also gives us an enormous amount of cumulative expertise and experiences in those areas. And uh, and that's why it's you know it's great to be, you know, to, to be able to do this with Bain's private equity practice. Right. And the benefits of that leadership goes back to the virtuous cycle that you described in terms of the, the acquisitions and the tools that you're able to bring into the ecosystem to just further extend the lead that we have, which is awesome. I think it's up to the leader in the industry to also be the leader on the innovation in that industry. And so that's why it's our mission to constantly innovate together with our clients to stay ahead. And for sure on the ESG side, I think it's important for us, for the new talent that joins us, that we have a purpose to drive our private equity clients, not just to be the best financial investors, but also to be the best investors for the world. Because I think if we can help, and it's only Bain with the the influence that we have on the private equity industry, I think it's only Bain uh, that can have the full drive and support the private equity industry to become better investors and better investors for the world. And if they do both, I think we're going to be a big driver, not just as a, as a good factor for the world, but also to have the private equity industry constantly as a, uh, as a growing and a successful industry. 
And that's the purpose that we have with our teams now. Better investors, not only financially, but also for the world. That's a, a, a really inspiring and ambitious goal for the practice and, and would have a huge impact on society. So we continue to support and cheer along the practice uh, for those of us that are not in it, just seeing the amazing work that's going on there. Christoph, as we start to wrap up, I thought maybe uh, it'd be helpful for people listening that maybe at a crossroads in their career and thinking about what they want to do next and thinking about how to have the life and lifestyle that they'd like to have. It's obviously balancing a lot of conflicting demands. And maybe you could share some insight into how you've thought about it in your own career and the decisions that you've made along the way. Yeah, there's probably two reflections that I would have on that. In terms of protecting uh, the personal lifestyle and making sure that consulting can be a long-term career, I've always tried to first carve out the time and set the boundaries on the personal side and then make sure that Bain could fit within that. What is really critical to preserve, you know, for me it was critical to preserve the weekends, the holidays, and time in the morning with the kids, bringing them to school, and some of those elements. And I've always tried to first put the personal boundaries together with my wife, together with the kids, and say what's important to preserve and then fit Bain into that. And that has worked remarkably well over those 20 years. Um, Also during COVID, you know, when we were all sitting at home, you know, I had blocked every noon, every evening as a meeting uh, with the family. And I think throughout COVID, I've been able to have every day, every evening, every noon, you know, the lunches and the dinners Mm -hmm. on top of the holiday and and the weekends. And that has been a, a good experience, actually. And it's by, again, setting out and carving out these times that I think you, you create a sustainable uh, life at Bain that can last for 10, 20, 30 years. Second piece of advice linked with that is I've never thought too much through long-term plan, five, 10 years of career. As long as I was enjoying what I did, I had fun with my clients and my colleagues. I thought that I was growing. Um, I enjoyed the time of Bain and I wasn't constantly looking in, into the other opportunities. Now, there's been plenty of opportunities that came my way. And those were always good ref- reflection moments to think, what can I do outside? But also, how do I think about my next three years at Bain and what will make this incredibly exciting? And drive an active engagement actually with Bain to say, this is what actually excitement could look over the coming three years. And so that you compare you know, two positive stories going forward. And that has been incredibly valuable as well to refresh myself on on, on regular timeframes in terms of, you know, thinking through the um, the attractive opportunities that could exist at Bain, not just looking back on what you did, but really looking forward to what you could do internally and then comparing the opportunity outside with, you know, a new opportunity inside of Bain. And that, that has always been very enriching as well uh, for myself. Awesome. And Christoph, I want to end with one other question uh, for you in terms of the outlook for our private equity business. What gets you excited about the next several years in the practice? I think there's um, a few elements that are really exciting as we think about private equity going forward. First, it's an asset class that will continue to grow because it drives great results. It will increasingly open up to retail investors. And so it is a space that will that has tailwinds and the private uh, capital markets has tailwinds and will continue to have tailwinds. The second piece that that I found really interesting about it, uh, first, it's close to the mission of Bain on driving results, 
you know, and as I said, results on multiple dimensions, you know, financial, but also uh, ESG type of results. Um, but it's also an industry that since its birth in, you know, the 70s or the 80s has constantly reinvented itself and innovated. You know, it, it maybe started with financial engineering, as people called it, but it very quickly became value creation driving. And then it went nowadays into digital transformations, how to work with data and analytics, broadening of asset classes, uh, working at the forefront of decarbonization and energy transition. And that will continue to be like that. Um, and ac across multiple times, people have said, yeah, the industry is maturing. But at the same time, I found the industry incredibly innovative to reinvent itself, to constantly drive better returns. And working together with an industry that is growing and that's constantly reinventing itself is really exciting. And, and that's why I'm really looking forward also to the coming years to work with an industry that will be growing and that will be reinventing itself and supporting it to reinvent itself even faster and better. Awesome. Well, Christoph, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, we've known each other for a very long time, and it was great to just finally hear a little bit more about the journey and, and talk about uh, something other than some of the deliverables that we're working on together. But thank you so much for your time today. and It was great talking with you. Thanks, Keith. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you'd like to share a review or give us input on what you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd really like to hear from you. Please email our inbox at beyondthebio at bain.com. We'll see you soon with some new episodes and thanks for listening.